Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He did not say unto seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is, Christ. What I am saying is this, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator, until the seed would would come to whom the promise had been made. Now a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be, for a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. Galatians 3, 15 through Lord, I pray that you'll bless the study of your word this morning. I pray that you'll give to each one of us uh, a truth, a new insight to your personality, to who you are, uh, and a way to live our Christian lives in a way that better please you and serve you. Christ, amen. If you'll take your Bibles and turn to Romans, we're in chapter 3 this morning. Try to, uh, well, if you have kids, you know how they always ask questions, right? They do. Sometimes their questions are rather funny. Sometimes their questions are interesting. The sad thing is they grow out of that. So I thought about getting some funny examples of funny questions from kids, but then I thought that wouldn't be funny. So, I thought about myself, and I thought, I like asking questions. I like asking questions. I like asking questions. Matter of fact, every Sunday you come here, you'll get a number of questions asked of you. Matter of fact, if you come this Sunday, you get 29 questions asked of you, and hopefully... If you study the reflection questions, you'll get more questions asked of you. I like asking questions. You learn a lot, and it causes you to ask more questions. One of the things Paul likes to do in his writings is he likes rhetorical questions. And this morning, we come to a passage where he's going to ask us some rhetorical questions. And when... The question is asked and answered. It shows insight into the person he's talking to. And if we study it properly, we'll realize that we kind of ask the same questions and that Paul is asking us the same kind of question. So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to try to take the passage, we're going to try to apply it to ourselves, and we're going to ask ourselves some questions. Rhetorical. I'm not going to go around the room, although I thought about it. 
Paul asks us five questions this morning. We're going to study those five questions. We're going to end up spending the most time on the fifth question. But let's begin with the first. Look at Romans chapter 3, verse 27. Romans chapter 3, verse 27. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Stop there. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Do Christians today have an advantage over non-believers like the Jews thought they had over the Gentiles? Do Christians have an advantage over non-believers like the Jews thought they had over the Gentiles? Now, what we're trying to do is we're trying to understand what Paul's talking about to the Roman church, and they had Jewish believers, and they had Gentile believers, and there was a seemingly division problem in the church. And he has been talking to the Jews in every verse of chapter 3. Now we're getting to the end of chapter 3, and he brings up another question for the Jews to think about. Where is the boasting? Where is the boasting? First answer. First question. I'm going to rephrase it for us so we would understand it. Question number one. Can a believer boast about his salvation? Can a believer boast about his salvation? Paul says, the rhetorical question is answered, may it never be. May it never be. Can a believer boast about his salvation? Boasting is an interesting thing. It comes, it comes out of you, and it comes from an inner heart of pride. When you are proud about something, your words and actions come out in a boasting way where you boast about something you did. Now, in salvation, is there something that you can boast about? Paul's been talking about condemnation, first three chapters, in the middle of chapter three, he stops and he starts talking about the righteousness of God. The goal of every person is to gain the righteousness of God, and the righteousness of God is given to us through the work of God the Father who just and justifies the believer through faith. And faith is based upon the work of Jesus Christ. Now, that is the gospel presentation. He's going to explain that for the next um, five chapters. He's going to explain that. He's going to deal with each subject, but he's going to talk about it now as a point so that we understand that there is no boasting in your salvation. Now, in a lot of churches today, this would be a problem. Because a lot of churches teach something you have to do to please God. It happens. Sometimes it happens by miscommunication. Because after salvation, there are a number of things the Bible commands us to do. And sometimes we put those things as important before salvation. And that breaks up the theme of grace. So, here we go. Salvation. Can you boast about it? Can you boast about it? Pride comes from personal achievement. 
in the gospel message, there is nothing personal that you can boast about. There's nothing you can be prideful about. There's nothing you do. Grace leaves nothing to pride or boasting. It is nothing about you. Pride does not like to submit to authority or depend upon mercy. Pride is your natural state of your sin nature. Out of your sin nature comes pride, and out of pride comes boasting. And when that occurs, when we're talking about salvation, you've crossed a line. You've made salvation into something you earn, like a paycheck, that you deserve and that God owes you. Rather than salvation being a gift of grace, a gift that you receive. Therefore, pride always rejects or redefines God and the gospel. And that's what you have in a lot of churches today. You have a lot of churches where they redefine who God is and redefine what the gospel is. So that somehow you can be proud and boast about your salvation. But we take the Bible, we take Romans, we look at Romans, we find out it's only through grace. Through faith. The work of Jesus Christ on the cross defeats pride and promotes the grace of God. The cross of Jesus Christ did everything a sinner needs to be done so he can be saved. It is excluded. Passive tense, which probably means God says, I've done everything you need for salvation. There's nothing you can add to it. There's a hymn. When I survey the wondrous cross, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss, and poor contempt on all my pride. Because of the cross of Jesus Christ, the theology of the song is great. Because of the glory that Jesus did on the cross, because he's the Prince of Glory died on the cross, it's my gain... I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Everything about the cross of Jesus Christ denies pride. Denies pride and therefore denies boasting. So when you boast, you're not boasting about salvation. You're boasting about something you think you did to please God. And you've crossed the line. Second question. The end of verse 27. By what kind of law? Of works? No. But by a law of faith. Do Christians today have an advantage over non-believers like Jews thought they had over Gentiles? Number two. The question number two. Can a believer be saved by good works? Can you do something you think is good and be saved by those good works? Paul's answer, may it never be. Of works, what kind of law can you do? 
He's referring to, I think, the entire Old Testament, according to chapter 3. The things in the Old Testament, the moral laws for the Old Testament, the moral laws that are shown us in the first five books, in the Psalms, in the history books, in the prophets, all those things that teach us about the moral laws that God requires and has. Are there things you can do to earn your salvation? The problem is we find out you and I cannot do them. We cannot do them. We cannot do them. Of works that we can boast about, but the law of faith cannot be boasted about. The law of faith, the purpose of the law was to lead the sinner to faith in the gospel message, in the work of Christ. The law of faith is something a number of preachers would not be able to preach today. The law of faith uses the law to point you to Christ. The law of faith is where you learn the grace of God giving you a gift of faith so that you can believe and accept. Verse 28, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Maintain. The word maintain there is plural. It seems to talk about that all the believers agree with Paul that a man is justified by faith. You are justified. We've talked about justification last three Sundays. Justification is where God declares you as righteous and you attain the righteousness of God by His work of justification. The sinner is not hopelessly lost in his sin and law, but has a way out, and that way out is by God's work of justification. God does a work where he declares you righteous. It is nothing you do. It is God doing the work. The reason he can justify you is because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ justifies you. God justifies you because of the work Jesus did on the cross. Justification is a doctrine that Paul talks about a lot. We have at least 11 passages that talk about Paul describing to you justification. Justification is key and will be key in our study until the end of chapter 5. We understand that salvation comes by a work of God justifying you. Third question. Verse 29. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Or is God the God of the Jews only? Do Christians today have an advantage over non-believers like the Jews thought they had over the Gentiles? Third question. Can a believer keep God to himself? Can a believer keep God to himself? Can you keep God in your corner and not allow Him out? Can you keep Him from having an effect on other people? The Jews thought that they had a special in with God. Sometimes today people, believers, think they have a special in with God. That God is their pet or Santa Claus or whatever you think, Easter Bunny, whatever He is. You think he's yours, and you keep him to yourself. 
the word God there is theos. It's used all over the time, all over the place in the New Testament, 1,300 times. If you're keeping track, 17. 13, 17 times it comes up. God, who is the one that is the just God and the justifier. The one God saves all people by the same way through faith. There is only one purpose. Well, let's say there's only one purpose of God working through you. And that is for us to share God with everyone we meet this week. God has people for us to meet and we want to share God with them. God is not something for you to hold on to or keep. You cannot think that God is God on Sunday mornings between 1030 and and 11.47 or so, okay? And you think you have God, and he stays in that corner all week long. And you keep him there, and he doesn't affect your life on Monday or Wednesday or Friday or anything else you do, and he doesn't come up on your lips any other time but Sunday between 10.30 and 11.50-something, Okay? You have your God, and you don't share him with anyone. That is a lot of how we think in today's church. That God is God, and he's on Sunday morning, and that's good for me. The Jews thought the same thing. He thought God was the God of the Jews not the Gentiles. Look at verse 29. Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. God of the Gentiles. The Jews had no advantage over the Gentiles. You weren't saved because you went to church. You weren't saved because you, every 10.30 on Sunday, you stayed until you fell asleep and then woke up at 10.59. Okay? That's not having a relationship with God. All people are sinners, and all are in need of the righteousness of God, which only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 30. Since indeed, God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Who will justify? God will justify. This is interesting because Every time we've seen that word so far in Romans, it's been present tense. This is the first time it's future tense. It's talking about the future. It's talking about the future when you and I go to heaven. When you and I are standing before our judge. And we will be declared justified or not. We'll either be condemned or we'll be justified. And if you think you can do good works to enter heaven, you will end up being condemned on that day. Now, if you place your faith in Jesus Christ and you place your faith in God, you ask to be justified by God, and God will do it because God is true to his word and just, you then will be justified on that day before the judge. Four, question number four, verse 31. 
Do we then nullify the law through faith? Do we then nullify the law through faith? Do Christians today have an advantage over non-believers like the Jews thought they had over Gentiles? Question number four. Can a believer disregard the law? Can we disregard what it says in the Old Testament about God's moral law? Can we disregard it? May it never be. Nullify. Can we nullify the law? The work of Jesus Christ does not nullify the law, make the law useless. It increases the value of the law of God through the work of Jesus Christ. The gospel does not replace the law, but answers and solves the problems presented by the law. The believers are not to obey are believers not to obey the moral laws of God? Of course not. Of course not. We're to obey the commands in the Old Testament and the New Testament. The moral commands that God sets out, we obey. But we do not do it to earn our salvation. We do it to thank Him and praise Him for His grace. Everybody with me? Most people are still awake. Good. Here we go. These questions, I think, were directed to the Jews and the church at Rome. And they were having problems because they were sitting in the better spots at church. Now, I'm not sure what that is. I think it's the first row where it's empty. But the better spots went to the Jews. And they thought themselves better than the other Gentiles. They do not understand that God is the only God that can save you through the work of justification. It's the only way. It's only by accepting the gift. It's only by justification. It's only by the grace of God that you can be saved. Now the fifth question. The fifth question I've kind of added and kind of changed. But notice the end of verse 31. Question number five. Do I nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. We establish the law. How? What work do believers have after they have been justified? This is key. After you have been justified, after you have been changed, after something has changed in your life, you have to change how you act. For instance, let's go to the theologians here. There's a cartoon with Lucy and Linus. Linus is sitting in his den. He's watching TV. Lucy comes into the den. Lucy says, Lucy said, What makes you think you can walk in here and take over? Lucy comes into the TV room and tries to take over. And Linus is watching TV. Linus says, what are you doing? Lucy says, these five fingers. Individually, they're nothing. But when I curl them together like this into a single unit, they form a weapon that's terrible to behold. Linus was watching TV. Lucy comes into the room. He had a decision to make. Either to face the five-finger unit 
of weapon of wrath, or Linus says, what channel do you want? As he changes the channel, he looks at his own fingers and says, why can't you guys get organized like that? Change. This is, this, is the, this is the point here. We are changed. Because of the work of justification, your life is different. Your life is not like your non-believing friends. Your life is not like everyone else's. You're not like this world. Your life has changed. You have changed. Notice the first thing. Question number five. What do work do believers have after they've been justified? Number five. How can a believer establish the law? By the way, notice the change. May it be. May it be. You and I, once we are justified, we are to establish the law. And I thought about changing the word established, but I like it. It's what Paul said. We are to establish the law of God. Therefore, the law of faith, the New Testament, affects the law in the Old Testament. The believer is changed and justified. Therefore, we live different. And we've created, come to a fork in the road where we are changed. We act different, we live different, we do things differently. And we are different. Now, notice the first thing he says. The first purpose of the law. The purpose of the law is fulfilled when a sinner is justified by faith. The first thing that happens is that the believer is justified by faith. May it never be. On contrary, we establish the law. You and I, when we are justified, it's the first step in establishing the law. You can say that the rest of your life on earth is now a process of establishing the law. You have a life that is different because you have been justified by the God of justice who does the work of justification. You have a different relationship with the God of righteousness. You have a different relationship with righteousness. Later on in Romans, he talks about being a slave to righteousness. You have changed and you are different. We establish. I like how Paul adds himself there. Justification leads to keeping the law. Those who have faith in Jesus Christ will keep the law of God. Believers who have been declared righteous by the judge must submit to the law. The only way to keep the law is after salvation by faith being justified by God the Father, being redeemed by God the Son, and being indwelt by the power of the Holy Spirit. All three. You are justified by God the Father. God the Son does the work so you can be redeemed. 
And then the Holy Spirit comes into you and dwells you and empowers you so that you can do the things commanded in the law. And you establish the law. Everything that happens. The law will not only lead to the death of Jesus Christ, but the law also led to the person, Jesus Christ. The cross led to, to the believer to being able to fulfill the law. Romans 8.4 says, So that the requirements of the law will be filled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit of God. Now, this is good. Now, what else do you justified people do to show that you are establishing the law of God? What are you doing to establish the law of God? Now, before you raise your hand, I have answers for you. Okay? And I want you to know, especially those of you that go home and read John MacArthur's commentary on Romans to see if I was right in what I preached about the morning. I want you to know that I read his commentary and he has a list very similar to mine. But I am the one that came up with it first. <laughs> I, am, I am the one that came up with it first. So... If you want to complain that somebody stole something for somebody, it's him stealing from me. Okay? Just so we understand. Here we go. We're going to go through this quick. And I want you to read the verse that I'm going to put on the screen. I don't want you to take time to turn to it because it's going to be going too fast. And then I want you to write down the principle that changes in your life from being a person controlled by sin to being a person controlled by God. There's a difference in your life. You ready? You ready? Are you ready? Somebody grunt, please. Good. How can a believer establish the law? Here we go. Romans 3.27 there then is, where then is boasting? It's excluded. We studied this just this morning. You might remember it. <laughs> Second point, the purpose of the law is fulfilled when a sinner is humbled and he humbles himself. A sinner needs to humble himself. The very first thing you notice about the sinner who is justified is that he humbles himself and comes to God as your only hope. You humble yourself. You do not put yourself in a pride, boastful way. You humble yourself and say, save me, Lord. It's like the, uh, the, the Pharisee that's praying. And he says, thank you, I'm not like that sinner over there. And the sinner is pleading to God, have mercy on me. That is it. That's humble. You cry out to God for salvation. You say, Help, and God helps. He justifies. He justifies. He gives you the humility. Pride cannot accept 
salvation. Only a humble person can accept salvation. Number three, Romans 6.11. Even so, consider yourself to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Even so, consider yourself to be dead to sin. If you're dead to sin, that means what? That the purpose of the law is fulfilled when a sinner repents. When a sinner repents. When a sinner repents, he has a hatred for sin. There's a change in your relationship with sin. And you no longer live for it and love it. It is now dead. You're dead to sin. Now, I'm not talking about guilt, okay? A lot of sinners can be guilty about sin, especially when they get caught, okay? I'm not talking about guilt. I'm talking about repentance. You turn from your sin. Your sin is now dead. Here we go, number four. Romans 6.17 But thanks be to God that though you were slaves to sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. That form of teaching which you were committed. Number four, the purpose of the law is fulfilled when a believer obeys God. When a believer obeys God, which would be fulfilling and establishing the law. When you do what the moral law says, you are being obedient to God and you're pleasing God, so you're showing that you're a believer, you've been justified and sanctified, and you will be glorified. You say, I will obey. You remember the rich young ruler, Matthew 19? Rich young rulers came to Jesus and said, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Exactly what a lot of people say today. What good thing must I do to be saved? Jesus gave him the Ten Commandments. He said, well, I've done all that. Jesus stopped, looked at him, and said, then, well, you, you need to follow me. You need to follow me. And guess what? He couldn't do that. He couldn't sell everything he had and follow Jesus. He could not obey Jesus. If you are justified by the justifier, if you are turned in your faith to Jesus Christ, one of the things that will happen is you'll obey God's moral law and you'll obey his commands. And guess what you will do? You will follow Jesus. By the way, what you see today is a lot of morality. A lot of people think by doing what they think is moral that they will be saved by God. And doing something morally good does not save you. It is only God who justifies. Sinner can act moral and not be saved. And a lot of people try that. Here we go, number five. Acts, or excuse me, Romans 8, 7. Romans 8, 7. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. Number five. The purpose of the law is fulfilled when a believer loves God. When a believer loves God. You have to love God. You have to... Not love sin, because you love sin, 
that shows your hostility to God. But you love God. By the way, we have a lot of false churches today that are teaching Come do this. Come do that. Do this action. Do Boy, be part of this club. You do this. Then God will accept you. And it's not what God wants. Romans 5, 5 says, The hope does not disappoint because the love of God which poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The love of God will be a natural thing that happens to a person who has been justified. You will love God. You will love God. Number six, number six, Romans chapter 12, verse two, just the first part. And do not be conformed to this world and do not be conformed to this world. The purpose of the law is fulfilled when a believer is transformed. When a believer is transformed, he will be transformed, but be transformed. You will be fulfilling the law. When you no longer conform to this world. When you conform to God's world. And I tell you, well, you know this. You see a lot of people who go to church on Sunday, and then on Monday, by their actions, you can't tell who went to church on Sunday. They don't act like they learned anything on Sunday. They conform to the world. Seven. The end of verse two. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. By the renewing of your mind. The purpose of the law is fulfilled when a believer is growing in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. When a believer is growing in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Second Peter 3.18 says, Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ. You grow in knowledge. Now understand, there are a lot of non-believers that know a lot about the Bible. But, that knowledge will not save them. Okay? They know something. It doesn't change their life. Okay? It doesn't get to their renewing of their mind. Matter of fact, James talks about demons knowing things. And it doesn't save a demon. You believe God is one, you do well. The demons also believe that God is one. But it doesn't save them. Knowing things doesn't save you. But for a believer, you grow in your knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that changes you. That shows your change. Number eight. Romans 12.10 Romans 12.10 Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. The purpose of the law is fulfilled when a believer has love for others. When a believer has love for others. Now, this is interesting because I think it goes, it talks specifically here about a believer loving another believer, but I think it goes beyond that, that you have a love that even goes to non-believers. You will have love for others. You will be devoted to others, and you will love others. Just going to church and sitting in your seat will not save you. 
Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy, preach in your name? <laughs> Let me just stop there for a minute. There will be a lot of preachers in the future that will get to heaven and say, wait a minute, I'm in the wrong line here. I'm in the line headed for the lake of fire. I'm a preacher. <laughs> and Jesus will say, I never knew you. Even though you do good works, you do good things, you have to have a love for one another. You have to have a love for one another. Nine, here we go. Nine. Romans 12, 12. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation. Well, that's good. Let's talk about those later. But the third one there, devoted to prayer. Devoted to prayer. I like that. Number nine. The purpose of the law is fulfilled when a believer has a love for prayer. A love for prayer. A love for prayer. Do you know? Come on. Ask me. Ask me why I go to a prayer meeting every Wednesday night at my house. Ask me. I don't go because it's at my house. Why do I go? I go because I want to hear my friends pray. Do you know how many times I close prayer meeting on Wednesday night and I just want to say amen? When I hear my friends pray... It gives me goosebumps. Well, okay, I don't know what that... But it gets me going. It gives me something. It gets me through the rest of the week. When you hear your Christian friends pray, and they do it because they're devoted to prayer, that is a sign of a justified establishing the Old Testament law believer. When they love to pray. You know, okay, I'm, I'm crossing lines here. I'm stepping on toes. I'm sorry. I apologize. Didn't mean to step on your toe. Right. But Wednesday nights, we need to have more people at Wednesday night than we have on Sunday morning. And if I have more people on Wednesday night than Sunday morning, I will be a happy pastor. Think about that for a minute. The problem with uh, religion today is a lot of false words. Uh, a lot of things they say that they don't mean. Uh, a lot of people, uh, a lot of false churches have uh, prayers written down that you're to repeat. Or some of them have uh, prayers that you repeat in order to go with the speaker. In response to the preacher. A sinner can use terms that sound spiritual. But not be saved. A sinner can repeat a memorized prayer. And not be saved. But when you've been justified. You'll be devoted to prayer. Application. Here we go. This week, will I do everything I can with my 
biblical actions inspired by the Holy Spirit to establish the law of God. In other words, will I do one through nine? (laughs) Will I do one through nine? Will I do everything that I can with my biblical actions inspired by the Holy Spirit to establish the law of God? To establish the law of God. Now, understand, one of the things that should be a position of authority and a position of respect should be for us, the professors that are teaching young people about God. I got a quote for you. It comes from a religion professor, Timothy Snedeker, who was asked if he could go back in time, what would he do? If you could go back in time, you teacher of religion, what would you do? This is his answer. Everybody sitting down? Hang on. Teacher, teaching people about God. Oh, you're not ready. Here it comes. He said, easy, quote, easy. I would find and assassinate Jesus of Nazareth. He thinks by killing Jesus Christ, he will solve all the problems in the world. What? Yes, that's the silly thing. They did try that. And they thought the biggest crime ended up being the the biggest saving event in history. He doesn't know anything about religion. He is a person who's never been justified by a just God. He's never one who knows the righteousness of God. He may be in a classroom teaching all day long, but he doesn't know the first thing about God. There are people, and I don't want you to be one of them, who think by doing things, they're pleasing God. And it's not that. Everything you do has to begin with justification. Has to begin with the righteousness of God. Has to be with you humbly submitting yourself to a Savior. And then that Savior (laughs) changes your life. And you then can establish the law. You can fulfill the law. You can do the law. You can show how to have an effect on this world because of the power of the Holy Spirit. You will change the world. Let's pray. Father, first off, I want to pray for this Professor Timothy Snedeker. I pray, Father, that you would work in his life so that he'd come to a place where he knows Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, that he would repent of his sins and that he'd surrender and submit himself, Father, to you in a humble act of faith and accept the gift of Jesus Christ. Pray, Father, for everyone here that we would accept that gift by faith. I pray, Father, for everyone here that knows Jesus Christ, has been justified, that this week we go out and do the nine things that we can establish the law by doing the work 
you've called us to do. I pray, Father, that we would love God. I pray, Father, we'd love one another. I pray, Father, that we'd be obedient to your commands. I pray, Father, that we'd be witnesses of you, that we'd repent of our sins, that we would be growing in our faith, that we would be a testimony of a life given control over to God the Father. I pray, Father, that you would be with each one. Help us in our struggles with sin. Help us with our temptation. Help us, Father, keep our eyes on you and off the troubles of this world. I pray, Father, that we would glorify you with our lives. And the first step in doing that is by accepting your gift of salvation, free of charge. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.